Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to reply, guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. How are you doing? I am all right. It's a rainy Friday here in New York City. It's been so weird lately. Like the weather has been like 44 degrees, 20 degrees. It's all over the place. It's, Mm -hmm. oh my God, I see little June in the background and she's precious. Yep, she loves to be. She loves to be involved. She's feeling pretty sleepy. <laughs> I, I met some. Uh, I met some fans in. Um, I went on tour in Montana, and I met some people there, and th- that are listeners of the podcast. And they were asking me about Little Pearl, and in general, I think it's bad to have a parasocial relationship with you know, podcast people, but I but think... But not their cats. But not their cats. I love the people of a parasocial relationship with Little Pearl and Little June and Little Albert <laughs> to some extent. Although I don't know why he doesn't get brought up on the podcast as much. He is a little... He's so sweet. He's a great cat. He's... It's because he's just, you know, he doesn't elicit the kind of negative attention that Little Pearl does. Well, I think it's because Pearl only pays attention to me when I am doing something like podcasting. Like she'll right. just crawl into my lap when I'm talking to someone else because she hates not having my attention. Well, I'm sorry if uh, if you can hear any residual noise. The guys upstairs are, uh, I don't know, river dancing or some shit and also vacuuming. Um, but this is when, this is the only time we could record. So... Strap in, everybody. No worries. I I have a reply guy of the week this week. Um, Let's hear it. Uh, Adam Carolla. Okay. Oh wow. Did you did you see him? Did you see no. this clip? Okay, so he. I try not to. So he went on uh, Tucker Carlson's show. I guess Ugh. they were taking a little break from having Glenn Greenwald on or whatever. So <laughs> uh, the reply. I feel like actually now that Trump is banned from Twitter, that. Glenn Greenwald's might be the the like the best reply guy ever. Like a do a dubious honor. Yeah, I mean he's just you know we've we've talked about it on the show, but his commitment to the replies is is, is unparalleled. Um, he will never he will never know peace. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yesterday Adam Carolla was on uh, Tucker Carlson and he was talking about. Um, he was talking about AOC and he, you know, said basically the only reason that people pay attention to her is because she is young and attractive so that, you know, cameras follow her around and that nobody would pay attention to her if she was fat and 60 years old. And <laughs> both of them, no, this wasn't on Carlson. This was on Hannity. I don't oh. know. Yeah. So, but anyways, so both of them agreed uh, that she, AOC, has more power in the uh, Democratic Party than Nancy Pelosi, which is, in my opinion, a, a, a pretty objectively untrue claim. Um, but I that don't. could not be further from the truth. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I don't know if that if that were true, then we wouldn't have to be like scrapping to get. Uh, you know, bills passed like uh, saying that uh, members of Congress and their spouses can't trade stocks. Yeah, I 
personally, I, I have my um, I have my beefs with AOC. You know, I think that I think that she could be doing a lot more right now um, to oppose, you know, the the kind of corporate uh, wing. I don't want to say because it's like it's like almost everyone. So, you know, yeah. I, but um, I mean, I think that, you know, it's just um, there's like this type of old guy that they just really want to prove that, you know, they can still call women, you know, fat or something or, or I don't know. Adam Carolla truly would not. I don't know where he would be in, you know, spiritually, psychologically, if he could not call women fat on TV. I mean, I used to be like when I was growing up, I was an avid listener of Loveline with Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew. And it is so crazy how both how right wing both of those men are and that this was like the propaganda that I was putting into my brain every day. Well, I used to watch (laughs) I used to watch Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew and um I guess, I mean, I guess that sentence alone should have maybe given me a tip off that he was a a hack or something, but he doesn't come across as such. And I'm just like, I'm honestly really, I am still surprised that he is the way that he is now, Dr. Drew. I expected more from him and I shouldn't have. Yeah, I mean, the the notes of it were there the whole time. I remember, like, the most common call on that show was some woman would call in and be like, I'm really horny, or I've had sex with a lot of people, or basically, you know, just a horny lady, right? And then Dr. Drew would always go immediately to, you have been molested by someone in your family. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Okay, well, then, if if, see, if I had known that earlier... If I had known that side of Dr. Drew's tra- trajectory, I probably would have uh, been less surprised at his current outcome. I met Dr. Drew once when I was opening for Ali Wong. He came to the show. He was a huge Ali Wong fan. And, you know, makes sense. She's a really good comedian. But, uh, yeah, it's funny that Dr. Drew is, like, so right wing. And then also is like, you know who my favorite comedian is? Ali Wong. <laughs> <laughs> Ali Wong, who talks openly about uh, her sexual desire. Dr. Drew is sitting there the whole time thinking, wow, so many people have been sexually assaulted by by their parents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But so, you know, the news cycle this week has been very dominated um, by uh, one Joe, and that is Joe Rogan. But... I thought that we could pay attention to another Joe that is responsible for uh, many bad things with the coronavirus. And that is... Who could it be? It is Joe Biden. Oh, my God. No way. Yeah. yeah. So something that he did this week is is pretty fucking horrible, which is um, he's going to continue the policy uh, called Title 42 of expelling asylum seekers without hearing with you know without any like any chance to to be in front of a judge and what that means you know in real terms is is that there's people who have traveled to the united states you know from areas where there is where their lives are at risk right like that's Mm -hmm. that's what asylum is is you're you're leaving the place because you are at risk of of being killed or maybe your family members have been killed um 
and uh, you know you're supposed to be able to to get in front of a judge and say you know what the what the danger is and then they evaluate you know if they think that that's real or you know there's plenty of problems with it in general right like the amount of proof that people need of like being in this situation is also like not attainable for many people who are fleeing for their lives right but so Basically, if, because of COVID as an excuse, they're continuing this obscene and cruel policy of design, of uh, denying asylum seekers any form of due process. And, you know, I'm just not really seeing the outrage that there there should be about this, you know, um, particularly it's like in addition to being cruel, it's like. You're going to say that this is because of COVID, but you're also not doing anything about COVID, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I th- I think that, you know, we knew that this was going to happen to a certain extent, that the policies that have been continued, not just from the Trump administration, but the bad ones from the Obama administration as well, um, that when they were continued under the Biden administration, you just wouldn't have you just wouldn't have the kind of uproar that you did during the Trump administration because people are just, people are just more tuned out now. He doesn't have the like media circus situation that president Trump did. Yeah. I've been thinking about that a lot this week with all of this like Spotify stuff. And it's like, you know, you got all these celebrities coming out and saying that they're taking their stuff off Spotify, which is totally their right to do. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that if they want to do that. But I mean, it does feel like sort of a, a I don't want to say Pyrrhic victory because there's no there's no victory. But, you know, it's like we're looking at these like cultural figures you know, to sort of like apply pressure to or whatever, but there's, you know, huge liberal resistance to applying any sort of pressure to like, you Mm -hmm. know, the federal government or something Mm -hmm. like that. And that's been getting me down. (laughs) Yeah. It's, um, it's pretty depressing. There doesn't, I mean, besides different unionization efforts, I have been finding it hard to, find a bright spot in these in these trying times uh and i don't know i uh it's funny in my my interview today with uh luke savage who is a staff writer for jacobin we talked about we talked kind of at length about trump for the first time in a long time on this show and it felt so strange because even though biden has only been in office for a year which is cuckoo crazy i can't believe it it feels like 10 years (laughs) yeah it's been a little bit longer than a year right yeah luke was speculating about the resurgence of donald trump within the republican party on the national stage and i was just like i i don't know i couldn't even my brain can't handle that uh scenario i mean you know we're like almost three years away from an election, presidential election. But I, I definitely see Republicans taking this back. 
I mean, I, people are really deeply unsatisfied with the way that things are going. And there was a giant amount of pushback on, you know, COVID policies, like vaccine mandates and stuff. People are really pissed off. And I don't think that that's like, you know, I mean, I, I'm not, <laughs> I, I believe that the government should take COVID really seriously, but I also think that like, they're not really doing much like towards the, you know, the positive ways of, of taking it seriously, like, you know, giving people money or uh, making testing really easily. It's it's like only the the downsides that they're really right. focusing on. And it's like pissing, it's pissing people off a lot, you know, yeah. it's part of the reason that this like wacko anti-vax shit is, is getting so popular, I think, which yeah. is just nuts, you know? Yeah, it kind of goes towards something we we talked about later in the interview which is that like for so long the um the big talking heads uh of the republican media sphere have been these like inflammatory ghouls in search of a cause and i think trump gave them the language for their cause in combination with now the i i mean i think it was like a perfect storm for something like the vaccine, the anti-vaccine hysteria, um, because, you know, most of these like Fox News types are fully vaccinated and boosted, but they want to they want a culture war. They want to keep peddling this garbage to you know, pad their bottom line. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about that a lot this week because, you know, with this whole, like, this whole Spotify thing, I think what feels, like, really demoralizing about it is it's, like, just investing, like, a huge amount of energy in something that is absolutely not going to do anything because, like, mm-hmm. let's say they, you know, Spotify boots Joe Rogan. Okay, well, whatever. He still has like a a huge, huge platform. But, you know, it's like this refusal to acknowledge how we got to this point, like why people actually distrust the CDC, which there are, you know, the CDC has been pretty shitty with a lot of this. Like, I mean, the, you know, like, oh, we don't need to wear masks okay, we do need to wear masks, you know, okay, well, uh, you're fine to go anywhere if you have the vaccine, all right, never mind. And, you know, there's just been really, like, shitty and inconsistent messaging. Um, I mean, like, media has been, you know, particularly from, I mean, really from the Iraq war on, I mean, like, there's just been some really, really, really huge lies that have been going on. And it's like, you know, I mean, like the reason that we have so many like wackos that are just out on some super fringe level, like it's not, there's not a quick solution to it. And I just see it getting worse and worse unless it's addressed for real. I don't know. Yeah, I I agree with you. I don't know how I, you know, I, I do agree with you about the CDC. Um, to an extent, I do think that science is constantly science and medicine are both constantly evolving and neither of them are kind of are like will have fixed guidelines. Everything is constantly being updated. So, you know, there was a time when we all thought that we had to like 
sanitize our groceries or whatever, but more information came to light and we realized we don't have to do that. I, so I, uh, I understand. Look, I totally understand people's frustrations with the CDC. And at this point, the CDC is kind of taking directives from CEOs. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Be, like being like, how can we most quickly get, uh, get workers back on the line? Um, and that's incredibly fucked up. I do think that there have always been charlatans and snake oil salesmen like Joe Rogan or just, you know, just Joe Rogan is someone like Jordan Peterson, I think, is a snake oil salesman. I do think that Joe Rogan is too dumb to be a snake oil salesman. Um, but I yeah, I don't know. I, I, mean, I, I think I think he always would have had he always would have had a following just because of the kind of person that he is. But the degree to which I mean, his influence is so enormous. He has three million more listeners per episode than the than the highest rated network nightly news program yeah i mean he spent a huge percentage of his show talking about how the moon landing was faked he's always been a conspiracy guy but it's like why you know i mean and there could be a context in which like a, a wacky conspiracy guy could not really be you know doing harm in this way you know like if people are i mean it's it's funny to listen to people who have like super fringy stoner opinions right like but you know like we've come gotten to this point where i mean people are so distrustful that conspiracy thinking is like all-time high you know like right. the amount of people that believe in QAnon alone is insane oh i know and you know that's of course been aided and abetted by social media and the internet of course but it's you know, it's kind of, it reminds me of, there's a part of the, the show Slow Burn season one that talked about the rise of conspiracy theories following the Nixon, during and following the Nixon administration. Yeah. And it basically, you know, uh, Leon Nafok posits that it exploded to the degree that it did after that, because what was Watergate, if not a conspiracy theory that turned out to be true? Yeah. You know, <laughs> And I think we've had a lot of that in our lifetimes as well. Yeah. So I understand, you know, whether it's, you know, the financial crisis or the WMDs in the lack of WMDs in Iraq, um, you know, I get it. Um, but all I, I just- really want to emphasize to you is that ancient aliens are real. <laughs> they did build the pyramids. Yes. Uh- yeah. Um. No, but yeah, it's it's a wild time, and I, I'm I'm actually really excited to to hear your interview with Blue because you talked about NFTs. I still, I mean, I have looked into NFTs for like hours and hours of my life, and I still do not really understand why people think this is a good idea. Well, we yeah, we get into that a lot, and as we both, you know, 
Luke and I have both kind of done research deep dives to varying degrees on NFTs. And it's one of those things that when you try to explain, even knowing what, what you know about it now, you know, when you try to explain it out loud, it sounds like gobbledygook because it is. It's nonsense. Yeah. Um, but I think that there are larger implications of cryptocurrency and the rise of NFTs and everything that... Uh, I really wanted to explore as depressing as it is. So, um, yeah, and Luke is the best. He's, uh, yeah, super smart. And he uh, he's always a, a great hang and a great conversationalist. So uh, we, we're we so glad to welcome him back. And we, we hope to have him back again soon. Awesome. All right. Enjoy the interview. Bye. Hello, and welcome back to Reply Guys. Uh, it's just Julia solo on the mic today, but I'm very excited um, to speak to our guest this week. He is a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine. We, You know him. You love him. It's Luke Savage. Welcome back to the show, Luke. Thanks for having me, Julia. It's good to be back. Oh, we love having you. I really wanted to, t- I mean, uh, there are a few things. You're always writing really interesting and compelling things for Jacobin. And I know you're also um, about a month out from the release of your book, which I'm very excited about. We can talk about that a little bit more in the show. Um, and when your book comes out, we're definitely going to have you back to talk about that. But I really wanted to talk to you today because you had a piece that was just near and dear to my heart uh, in the past few weeks um, and for for Jacobin titled NFTs are quite simply bullshit and boy did I love it from just from the title um, we've been hearing more and more about you know the horrors of cryptocurrency in the past few years it's really exploded during the pandemic nfts are this particular kind of nightmare um it stands for non-fungible tokens it's basically um a uh, you kind of own a receipt saying that you have rights to a jpeg it's really, and if it sounds like I don't know what I'm talking about, that is partially true, but also it is also that stupid. Well, they they are hard. They are genuinely hard to describe because like no description can do justice to how like silly the idea is. And yes. you always think, well, I must be missing something because any description of it just feels like that will, how how are people, how are hundreds of thousands, how are millions of dollars changing hands uh, on the basis of these things? It is really something. And I mean, it makes sense in our extremely broken late capitalist nightmare in which we all live, for sure. It's been, NFTs have been, been getting more and more traction in media coverage, mostly because celebrities keep talking about them. Um, I'm not going to play the clip of Paris Hilton on Jimmy Fallon because I have too much respect for our listeners, um, but feel free to look it up for yourself. It does seem like they were both paid to do a, a weird infomercial for NFTs, and Paris Hilton is apparently like, 
number seven in the NFT world in terms of ownership. But basically, I mean, NFTs as they are commonly used, uh, as they're commonly described are mostly referring to quote, like digital art pieces. And you like an NFT is like, you have a receipt that lives on the blockchain saying that you own <laughs> this image that's infinitely replicable. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, so you own like board uh ape yacht or board yacht ape number, you know, sixty seven or something. It's kinda like the millionaire equivalent of having a first edition Charizard or something, you know. Exactly. Which, which I did back in like nineteen ninety eight. Yeah. You know, I had Pokemon, I had Pogs, I had Crazy Bones. Does anyone remember Crazy Bones? I loved that. Those were fun, at least. <laughs> yeah, those were like, uh, at my school, those were like the rebound for like a lot of kids when Pokemon cards were on the wane. We mm -hmm. were like, oh, don't worry. It's like still going to be good with Crazy Bones. But I feel like they didn't catch on in the same way. I loved them. My brother and I used to play all the time. You'd flick them with your little <laughs> middle. Ugh, so fun. See, all these Anyways. things we just mentioned are superior to NFTs because you can't actually <laughs> hold them in your hand. It's like, it's easy to make fun of my childhood self for being into, like, I thought a first edition Charizard, I remember, like, taking it out and showing it to the kids at my school and, like, it being in, like, like I put it in, like, multiple little sleeves. I bought a special <laughs> sleeve that was better than the other sleeves that I had for my other holographic Pokemon cards. And I was like, don't touch it, kids. Like, your fingers have destructive oils. Like, don't, don't touch the Charizard. Uh, and I just remember like this gasp as like I pointed to the tiny, like the only difference b with the first edition Charizard was that it had that like little tiny black circle that had like a number one in it. Uh, but it, it, like inexplicably, we all treated it with like tremendous reverence. And like, it's easy to make fun of that, but you could actually like play a card game that was kind of fun with the yeah. first edition Charizard. <laughs> And as we've already said, Crazy Bones, incredibly fun to play. <laughs> You're really standing for Crazy Bones. On, I love on this Crazy one. Bones. <laughs> <laughs> I've had three cups of coffee and I just am up about Crazy Bones. Um, but yeah, I... So the decentralized finance world, we haven't really dedicated a lot of time on the show to talking about cryptocurrency and decentralized finance, mostly because it's very sad and it makes me want to kill myself. Um, but it really is, I mean, it's something that we have to talk about because it is encroaching into more and more of the financial world, the traditional financial world. Um, and it's really... And this is something that you noted in your piece, which we will link in the show notes, of course, is that cryptocurrency has exploded just as, you know, in the same timeline as this unthinkable economic hardship has swept the world um, due to the pandemic. And that's not really a huge surprise, uh, even though a lot of the language used by people in the DeFi world is all about how cryptocurrency and NFTs and decentralized finance makes, uh, you know, the internet more equitable. And, um, you know, it, it's very, the, the language used to describe it is really kind of utopian and egalitarian. But when you look at it, the people getting rich 
off of these things are largely the same people who were already rich via traditional finance. It's it's just seems like a worse replication of the old system. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, as with so many of these things, you know, I think there are a lot of parallels between uh, crypto and, and NFTs and decentralized finance and a lot of other things kind of um, adjacent to Silicon Valley or, or which have come out of Silicon Valley directly, both in terms of uh, how what you know how they actually are and, and how they actually work in practice, but also in terms of um, how they're how they're packaged and how there's this kind of language of, uh, you know, community empowerment, individual empowerment, you know, even self-actualization, whatever, um, you know, tied to all tied to something that is in practice, you know, like you know, every scheme um, created by like the vanguards of American capitalism in practice, you know, very hierarchical and, you know, very kind of lopsided towards those at the top. So I see a lot of parallels between, um, I mean, you you know, you name it, you name your Silicon Valley, you know, uh, uh, fraud scheme, you know, the, the fire festival, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Which probably needs no introduction. WeWork, which is something I think is pretty interesting, which was like, you know, a glorified, uh, you know, real estate scheme. It was, you know, what the company was doing was just, you know, pretty banal, right? Like providing mm-hmm. space uh, for, for people to, you know, work in renting space, but then, you know, buying up all this property uh, kind of surreptitiously and pretending that they weren't a real estate company and then selling the whole the whole idea as you know oh we're so atomized uh you know on you know in our in our current condition and you know we're uh th- this is all about community and you know bringing people together and and that kind of thing um so so many of these so many of these schemes kind of use uh a similar sort of uh a similar sort of branding a similar sort of labeling and you know in some cases, anyway, that helps obscure, um, you know, in the cases, uh, the two I just mentioned, you know, both were obviously exposed as fraud and there were criminal cases attached to them. And and, and they were both also doing actual literal uh, fraud, right. um, you know, like they were just inflating numbers and things like that. Right. Billy McFarlane uh, called, a, you know, advertised this uh, this huge party on, you know, an island ad, uh, once owned by Pablo Escobar or whatever he said. And then it was like a different island. And like there was no party. There was a bunch of tents um, and uh, and, you know, shitty sandwiches and, and not much else. Um, but so many of these schemes all use, you know, that kind of uh, that kind of language, um, you know, uh, American capitalism, I feel like, is somewhat unique. I think this is like somewhat culturally specific to the United States in uh, the worst schemes it, uh, you know, coughs up often having a kind of populist veneer to them. Yes. You know, because there is a civic religion around capitalism in the United States, which I think uh, a lot of other countries aren't, you know, even if they're, you know, also neoliberal hellscapes in their own way, haven't fully uh, kind of absorbed yeah, and you know what? God bless them, because I it, you're you're so right about that. There is, I mean, just the reverence with which we have to speak about capitalism in the United States. Like all of our, even our kind of like more left leaning politicians have to speak with a sort of um, deference to the free market, <laughs> um, and it is a civic religion, but. Yeah, I I think that when 
when you make comparisons to something like Firefest or uh, WeWork or something, I actually think that NFTs are slightly mm, significantly worse um, because the more that I think about it, the more that I've learned about it, it does take on a pretty obvious pyramid scheme structure um, in that, you know, there was someone, I think some like tech writer or economics writer was saying on Twitter that celebrities have been talking about NFTs so much because, because of the nature of NFTs and their like replicability. Um, it only works. They can only sell at a profit if more people buy into the market and that is a pyramid scheme structure. You ha- yeah. like it's a downstream, it's a downline. Um, so I just think it's really, you know, at, at a time of such financial precarity for so many people to get swept up in something like this just will be so devastating for so many people when it eventually busts were you the person who said were you the one who said that you were afraid i i thought i saw someone on twitter say like i'm afraid that it's that nfts are going to collapse uh in a a slow and steady way instead of an immediate funny way were you the one who said that i i don't know i i might have been i can't remember (laughs) i i tweet a lot of stuff but that i mean that's that sounds about right to me and actually i'd take what you just said even further i mean i agree that they're Uh, worse than those other things I mentioned, Um, because I think they are in a way, um, you know, along with things like the metaverse, laying the groundwork for, you know, uh, you know, capital's attempt to find, you know, the next great frontier of commodification, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, you know, at at a certain point in the uh, history of the United States, the land ran out in the West and then, you know, new new sources of, uh, you know, domination and commodification had to be found. And this is kind of just our version of it, right? This is this is the late capitalist Oregon Trail. You know, <laughs> this is the this is the gold rush where, you know, a few people are going to get, uh, you know, rich and and a lot of people are going to lose um, are going to lose a lot. And, you know, for now, uh, because, you know, the decentralized finance, you know, its actual kind of legal status, you know, it doesn't have, um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty much like it's pretty much a wild west. And so right mm-hmm. now these things are functionally, um, I mean, they're functionally pretty useless. Like from what I can tell, uh, in many cases, they are just kind of status symbols. I mean, they're speculative investments and in that a few people... Yeah. You know, and some of whom are not rich, but you know, uh, you know, or weren't or or weren't rich. I mean, some people just like with cryptocurrency just happen to buy in at the right time, sell at the right time, whatever, and they and they make money. But that's not, um, you know, mostly what's what's happening with these. Um, the, you know, mo- most NFTs are completely worthless. There was a writer in Vulture uh, who described them as about as valuable as a QR code on a Coke bottle cap that sends you to a dead link to an mp3 download you know that's <laughs> that's like that's what most nfts actually are yeah and, and their use value is even i mean the whole the whole idea of exclusivity around them doesn't even really make sense when you think about it so jimmy fallon paid uh i, I can't remember the number it's in front of me here somewhere two hundred two hundred thousand dollars right right two hundred thousand dollars for his 
board uh board ape yacht uh nft um and you know it sounds so stupid it's it's insane and i mean th- this is i mean it took me a while to come to writing about nfts because it was so hard uh to get past and i think this was true for a lot of people a lot of people probably aren't really that inclined to read about them because how do you even get past like just that image of the ape right i mean that's the first nft i saw and you're like how are people paying for this um but so and Jimmy- also, as you know, as we have dis- discussed already, just describing them, it's just gobbledygook. It's just like <laughs> there's it, it's word soup. <laughs> right. And so, you know, Jimmy Fallon pays for that uh, NFT. Right. And then he gets, uh, you know, he gets the right to use it as his, that's his Twitter avatar. If you go to I mean, I don't yeah. follow Jimmy Fallon on Twitter because like we only have one life in this world. But it's like <laughs> but like. Like he gets to use that uh, Avi, but it's like you could just download his Avi and like copy and paste. Like you could, you can do whatever you want with it. You, you can, can literally just it. right click it. That's right. Right, cl- right click it and copy just, and save. Yeah, exactly. And so, really, it's. I mean, you know, it's it only the only people who recognize that. Uh, you know, are other people who have like who are like crypto or NFT pilled, right? Like it's a status symbol for like an incredibly exclusive and like niche uh, group of people. It's kind of like uh, you know certain kinds of watches, right? That like you know it's like once once you get a watch over like a few thousand dollars, like you can't improve on like the use value of it. And like there are types of watches that cost I don't know hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars that to you know you and I just look like you know it's like oh that's an expensive watch it probably cost a few thousand dollars but to the kinds of people who are rich enough to buy those kind of watches like they recognize immediately what that is and there's a whole bunch of you know status and like you know social capital or whatever attached to it i think nfts are are kind of like that but so for the time being like these things are are basically uh, are basically useless, but I think you know uh, they should be seen. Uh, and I think you kind of alluded to this already as a kind of um, at least uh, you know a, a proto version of you know a speculative a, a, a utopian scheme um, to to commodify uh, you know the digital the digital space to commodify imaginary space. And I think this is, in some ways, the most interesting thing about both uh, NFTs and cryptocurrency, because when you think about how science fiction has often conceived of, you know, digital space um, in this very futurist way, whether, you know, you're thinking about, like, the holodeck on Star Trek, where you can just, like, go and basically do uh, whatever you want, and, you know, like, the the physical space is kind of made limitless through technology or whatever, Um you know, when you think about like any number of kind of like middling sci-fi movies from like the 80s where you can like download yourself into a computer or whatever, the idea is always that there's this kind of uh, this limitless space that is not really tied to like you've transcended material reality. You can just do whatever. And this isn't true of NFTs or cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. right? Because they they have a trip. They have a huge energy consumption. Like the thing that the 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 thing that was supposed to be utopian about a metaverse was that it would be post scarcity, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, crypto uh, cryptocurrency and NFTs are quite literally the opposite of that. Even though what they are commodifying is a space that doesn't actually exist. Yes. It's forced scarcity, and it's also antithetical to the proposed 
ethos of the metaverse, which is moving away, which is decentralization and moving away from these like monopoly, like the monopolies that control the tech world. But in reality, the metaverse and cryptocurrency and NFTs, everything is about ownership and everything will eventually therefore become about creating monopolies. So it doesn't make sense on a practical level on uh, so many levels. Yeah, I, I mean, it's really not clear. Like, you know, I don't know what the kind of spiel is uh, that you would get from like, I don't know, like a really crypto pilled guy about like, what is what problem are NFTs and cryptocurrency solving? Uh, I mean, I've I've tried and because, you know, you find I mean, I think probably all of us by now have come across people on social media who are like really, really into crypto. I mean, I've even mm-hmm. encountered the odd person who's like, branding is like well i'm a left crypto guy no (laughs) get out i mean it's a it's a sad corner of the internet but i swear it's a real one um (laughs) but yeah i mean i i don't i don't know what the i don't know what the practical um the practical application of these things is supposed to be and you know you know don't want to dwell on the paris hilton jimmy fallon clip too much i mean it was just kind of a ridiculous thing that it felt like a good occasion like okay finally i'll I'll write about nfts but it is kind of an extraordinary clip like if people haven't seen it and they're interested in this i would recommend watching it because it is like there is something really bizarre about it i mean it does seem like an infomercial it seems kind of like i mean late night tv is all like scripted in a sense like you know but it is like they 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 don't there doesn't there doesn't seem to be a lot of conviction behind a lot of these celebrity endorsements like when Jimmy Fallon is talking especially um you know it's like pretty easy to imagine that there's like a masked gunman like just off camera <laughs> like holding placards like telling him what to say like he keeps looking i assume he's like like i well he's probably looking at a teleprompter but he's like keeps looking in this one direction and it just sounds like his heart's not in it mm-hmm. um and so, yeah, it's like even even the most even the people who are like supposedly getting the most out of this uh, this scheme and are able to kind of use NFTs as status symbols, like often don't seem like they're like really all that all that crazy about it. It just seems like they've all been kind of peer pressured <laughs> into buying into it. And, you know, to the tune of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, I think I just saw that like Justin Bieber purchased an NFT for like $1.5 million, which is, <laughs> again, it's it's just crazy money, especially when you consider the disparities uh, that are rampant in the United States. Like what? And as you said, it's a speculative, speculative investment um and we've seen that the cryptocurrency market is inherently unstable um it's took a huge hit in january um and just as eric adams was sworn in to be paid in bitcoin uh incredible i love that for him um but you know it's not regulated yet and it's not you know there are no uh, tax structures put in place for them and when that hammer comes down uh i think there will be a run on the market 
Yeah, I mean, it may be that the whole model is really just not sustainable and that, um, you know, like a lot of speculative bubbles, it will just, you know, burst and not really recover. I mean, past speculative bubbles, you know, like notably the, you know, real estate bubble that was at the, uh, you know, the root of the 2008-2009 financial crisis, you know, obviously... You know, housing and real estate is not something that's going to go away. Um, but I guess it's it's possible to imagine you know cryptocurrency will effectively just disappear, NFTs will just disappear, uh, or it's possible that they will win enough kind of legal recognition and there will be enough um, you know of an interest from rich people in keeping them going that uh, they'll be able to recover. Uh, I'm not really sure. The latter is my theory. Um, I do think that already. There are enough super rich people who are invested in the decentralized finance world and cryptocurrency and NFTs that those are the people who can unfortunately affect the most change, uh, as we've seen time and again throughout uh, all of our histories, but particularly American history. Um, And I just think that it will become too big to fail. I really do. I think it will be the the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac of our time. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose I should uh, I should issue something of a correction to what I said earlier in, you know, when I asked what problem are these meant to solve? I mean, there actually is a problem that they're meant to solve, which is uh the problem of uh you know, rich people being being so rich, wealth concentration being so intense now um, that actually, you know, a lot of people don't have anywhere to put their money. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. um, coronavirus, you know, it's caused a lot of economic hardship, you know, as we've been talking about in terms of people losing their job and um people having their savings liquidated, uh, things like that, probably mass evictions. I think we're probably not even through those happening yet. It'll probably take years to even document all of the horrors um, that will have come out of the last few years, particularly as, you know, eviction bans and things like that um, expire. Uh, But, you know, amidst all of that, um, you know, uh, there's there's been this tremendous upward transfer of wealth. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Elon Musk has become, you know, richer than probably any person in human history. I think it could be hard to cal- calculate if you go back to like, I don't know, Roman plutocrats or whatever, uh, in terms of like, how rich are they relative to society as a whole? Uh, you know, it's kind of like a difficult historical question. But Elon Musk, you know, and, and uh, a lot of other billionaires have gotten um, considerably richer. And there comes a point where you, you become so rich that like, there's really nowhere to sink that kind of money. I mean, uh, so, you know, there is a, a chronic, uh, lack of, uh, productive investment in global capitalism at the moment, because we're certainly not taxing this wealth, right? We could tax it. We could invest it in, you know, really rudimentary public infrastructure. We could invest it in green infrastructure. Uh, we could put it into high-speed rail, things like that. Um, you know, there's any number of things um, that that could be done with it. Um, but that's not happening because, you know, we don't have the kind of, uh, you know, I'm speaking generally here, but especially in the United States, there is not the uh, kind of, you know, progressive tax system that could, uh, you know, take that wealth and redistribute it to people or invest it uh, productively and usefully in things. Um, 
So, you know, uh, instead, we're leaving it to, like, Justin Bieber to, you know, uh, sit atop the commanding heights of the global economy and decide where this money uh, is going to go. And apparently the rich are deciding it's going to go into, like, shitty JPEGs of, uh, of bored apes. It's a gorgeous system. I'll say it. It's it's beautiful. It's flawless. Don't ever change. Yeah, it's no, it's. um... I also think that one of the reasons why I haven't I haven't really wanted to delve into this on the show uh, is because it makes me so sad. It makes me it is so depressing and bleak. The entire ecosystem of the metaverse and uh, cryptocurrency and especially NFTs, exactly everything that you just just described is so bleak. And highlights how ineffectual our government is at providing the most basic services for people, which they could do via a rounding error on these people's net worths. Um, it's just is really depressing. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I haven't read up on it properly, but apparently there's some historic bridge in Britain that's about to be demolished because Jeff Bezos's super yacht needs to fit through the no, like no. It ne- needs to like fit through the river or something. So yeah, it's like that's uh, that's where we're at right now. It's it's not great. Uh, incidentally, uh, as you were speaking just now, it occurred to me that. Uh, for some reason that we haven't heard, I haven't heard Donald Trump uh, say anything about cryptocurrency or NFTs yet. And I feel like that's bound to happen at some point. And I realize I think I'm not like psychologically or emotionally prepared <laughs> for like NFT Donald Trump. Like, what's that going to be like? <laughs> Just him screaming about bored, a- bored ape <laughs> NFTs. Oh, it can only... There, there was an incredible clip of him the other day where he was talking about, like, NATO headquarters for some reason at one of these, like, rallies that he's still doing where, like, you know, in the past, every Trump rally would have been, like, major news. But, like, because he's not on Twitter to, like, tweet about them, I feel like, you know, we don't really, like, we have to experience Trump through, like, Aaron Rupar tweets or whatever. Um, but, but Wait, he, you know what? That's like actually the biggest thing about him getting kicked off Twitter. I really did. I think it just neutered him in a way that no one was expecting because even though he is like, he was such a nuisance on Twitter, like, I just didn't realize how much of a source of his power it was. It was, I mean, he posted his way to the presidency. Like, <laughs> it's... It's like it's pretty it's pretty incredible, which um, is, you know, all any of us can hope for. <laughs> but so he, he was giving this uh, like he was talking the other day about NATO headquarters. And like I it was hard to tell what the context of the speech was like he was, I guess, saying something critical of NATO or something. But, you know, because his brain is extraordinary, like where like the route it decided to take was talking about like how the architecture of NATO headquarters looked really flimsy and you could like kill it with one bomb or something. And then his brain just like trailed off and was talking about like all of the architectural flaws and like the building and stuff. And so I'm just imagining like which only Donald Trump thinks like that. But I'm just imagining like 
what happens when like that brain like meets cryptocurrency? Like what happens when like Donald Trump inevitably like sits down with Elon Musk and like the two of them, uh, you know, he, he Musk like, you know, crypto pills uh, Trump. It's I don't think I don't <laughs> think it can happen. I genuinely don't think it can happen because I don't think Donald Trump has learned anything new about the world <laughs> since like 1998. <laughs> I really don't like Do you remember when he was, you know, when he was in the White House uh, he like everyone, you know, President Obama used to for his uh, presidential daily briefings would like have the iPad all all ready to go or whatever. Donald Trump would basically the, the people who worked for him were instructed to print out a few pages <laughs> with as many pictures as possible for and then he would just watch six hours of cable news a day. Again, he has not learned anything new since 1998. I guarantee his brain, his brain is mush. And I don't think that it could, like, I can barely wrap my arms around NFTs because they're so stupid. But um, because they're so convoluted, I just don't think... I mean, uh, the horrors of the modern age never cease to amaze me, so I could absolutely be wrong, and I'm sure I, I am wrong, but um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I just don't see him. I think he's he's just out twisting in the wind, uh, calling into Fox News every well, now gonna, and again. We're gonna we're gonna find out soon enough because I I strongly suspect that when Donald Trump almost certainly runs for president again. Which, like, if he's going to, we're going to know in the next, like, year, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, uh, Jack Dorsey or whatever is going to see dollar signs. I can't remember if Jack Dorsey is still CEO of Twitter. Um, Twitter's going to see dollar signs. Like, you know, TV networks are going to see dollar signs. And we're, Donald Trump's just going to be absolutely everywhere again, right? Like, the paradox of Trump in 2016 was that, like, the whole official and, like, 2016 and then just, like, continuing while he was president was that, like, the whole, like, almost the whole, like, infrastructure of media and culture uh, was, like, terrified of Donald Trump. It was just engaged in, like, you know, uh, perpetual daily meltdowns about, like, mm -hmm. everything that he said, everything that he did. But, like... You know, none of these, you know, cable news just like couldn't look away. Right. And like pe and the people who were offended by him and like threatened by him just could not look away. Like, I'll never forget uh, the night of I, I think it, I can't remember which uh, primary or caucus it was in 2016, where uh, Bernie, I think, came a close second or something. Um, and uh, Donald Trump, uh, I think uh, I can't remember if he won or not, but uh I was waiting to see Bernie speak. And instead, uh, what everybody got was just all of the networks uh, with a picture of Donald Trump's empty lectern. Like they could have cut to Bernie, who was giving, you know, his usual speech, uh, which, you know, is always something that uh, people need to hear. But the networks didn't want to show that for obvious mm -hmm. reasons. And instead, they thought it was more compelling uh, to show an empty lectern where Donald Trump was going to speak at some, you know, uh, at, at some future time. And I feel like this dynamic is probably just going to, uh, you know, reproduce itself because there's just too many, there are too many financial incentives. Um, and, you know, there's too much of an industry uh, around, um, you know, around Donald Trump uh, to, to just kind of switch it off if he runs for president again. I mean, 
I mean, since we're talking about speculative bubbles, uh, you know, I discovered anecdotally recently that um, one of the Donald Trump speculative bubbles has at least burst uh, for the time being. Uh, I discovered this because uh, I was taking in a bunch of secondhand books to a bookstore to sell them. And I get sent a lot of books to review. And as you can imagine, over the past like few years, I've been sent a ton of Trump books. Um, Mm -hmm. And I haven't tended to review most of them because like there's there's so many of them and like so few of them have anything real you know very interesting to say but so i had this giant haul of books and uh you know fetched a good price for a lot of them but uh there were a bunch that the store wouldn't take and what the guy said was my manager told me we can't take any more trump books because nobody's buying them anymore yeah um and if you go into your local you know kohl's or barnes and noble chapters indigo whatever uh, you really will see just piles upon piles of like, you know, books called like Toddler in Chief or whatever, you know. Well, this is this is why I wonder about the, you know, your theory about uh, like Twitter and the like big media heads seeing dollar signs, because I just don't think there is as much interest in him as there was. I think we like it played out for four years. We saw what happened and the novelty of his what initially made him skyrocket to fame uh in in the political sphere which was his republican primary performance of just basically going down the line being like you're stupid you're gay your dad's the zodiac killer like that <laughs> your wife's war- your wife is ugly yeah your My wife, wife is, is ugly. hot yeah <laughs> <laughs> You remember that when he when he uh, just he he tweeted like a picture of Ted Cruz's wife next to like a picture of like Melania's Melania. modeling photos from the nineties. See, this, got, this, he's so see, he's so funny. See, this is this this is why like he's he's gonna be back. There's no getting around it. I don't know. It. I don't know. I like when it was first happening. It was obvious. Like yeah, of course nobody could look away. But I think we've just we've seen what happens when that person has their hand <laughs> over all the buttons. I just don't I don't know. I don't like, I'm I sure don't, he, I don't think I don't people know. want him to be president again, but I have a hard time imagining if he runs for president and, you know, there are Republican primary debates again. I mean, imagine like what Donald Trump will do to like whatever, you know, cookie cutter, uh, you know, foundation hatched, you know, uh you know, big business adjacent, like hack the, you know, uh, geo, you know, whatever's left of the traditional GOP, like establishment serves up, like who's whoever the Jeb Bush of 2022 or 2024 rather is like, imagine what Donald Trump is going to do. And like, we're all going to watch those debates, right? We're all going to watch them. We're all going to tweet about them. All the networks are going to carry them. And, you know, at a certain point, it's like, it's not going to be possible to look away. Well, I actually think that instead of Donald Trump, it's just going to be a younger kind of Trumpian figure um, because Donald Trump has himself kind of run afoul of a lot of like, you know, he has a contentious relationship with a lot of the people at Fox News now. Um, Some of his biggest supporters are saying like that the Republican Party needs to move on past him. But I do think that for so long, the traditional Republican 
media sphere and you know the the hotheads of the party were kind of in search of a cause they were like inflammatory windbags in search of a cause and Donald Trump has shown them their cause um so I do think it's going to be I think it's going to be a scarier version of Trump because it will be someone who both has all of his uh, most unhinged, abhorrent opinions, but who can string a full sentence together. This this is like a really interesting question for the next few years. And it's been one of the most, I think, tricky questions in trying to understand Trumpism because Mm -hmm. On the you know Trump has clearly like if you you know it's it's true that like a lot of right wing uh, you know media and stuff traditional right wing media has tried to kind of move on from Donald Trump. I'm sure there are lots of GOP senators and House members who would prefer prefer it if he didn't run again. Would prefer a more respectable version of it um, or or whatever. Um, but you know I think if you look at polling of you know rank and file GOP voters, there's still like a very strong attachment to Trump. It was it was interesting after January 6th, there was a narrative in a lot of the liberal media about how uh, Republicans were leaving their party in droves because of uh, you know just in disgust at January 6th and Trumpism. Um, but it turned out there was a pretty convincing case to be made if you if you looked uh, into the polling a little more closely that a lot of people uh, Republicans in some cases were leaving. The GOP, but it was actually because uh, the GOP parts of the GOP were rejecting Trump. So it it was a thoroughly like pro-Trumpian like mm-hmm. departure exodus from the GOP. And I don't know. It's all of this speaks to well. They they also tried to run that narrative during in 2016 that all of these Republicans were uh, you know um, really horrified by his rhetoric right. and were, uh, leaving the party. And all of those same people came home to the Republican party, uh, the first Tuesday in November. Oh yeah. I mean, the national review did that, that never Trump issue where they had, you know, 15 of the top conservative writers who most people have never heard of, um, you know, denouncing Trump. And, you know, I think a majority of the contributors, uh, to that issue ended up becoming, uh, Pro, pro-Trump people. Of course, of um, course. And, but the, the, the challenge in thinking about Trumpism is that, like, on the one hand, it's not a really, it's hard to say what Trumpism is. It's not a coherent ideology. I mean, there were certain populist notes he was able to hit that, um, you know, distinguished him from a tr- traditional Republican candidate and helped him beat Clinton, you know, particularly his kind of anti-NAFTA stuff, which helped him win counties that had, you know, swung for Obama and things like that, helped him win states like Wisconsin, um, that kind of thing. Um, But, you know, Donald Trump, in many ways, very traditional Republican president, his biggest legacy was like a massive tax cut uh, for the rich. But but, you know, also uh, so much of Trump's appeal really is this like deep personal attachment to him, to all of his strange mannerisms, yeah. um, you know, like all of these, all of these like weirdo, like suburban uh, right wingers, like suddenly deciding that this like guy who, uh, you know, won't stop talking about Anna Wintour or whatever is like, you know, this archetype of American ma- masculinity I or know. whatever. It's like, it's really, really difficult to, it's really difficult to figure out. And I don't know, all of that to me really complicates like, the picture going forward for like where where do like institutional right wing politics go 
maybe like maybe uh, what you just said is right and somebody will just figure out a way to package you know some version of trumpism and make it look a little more upright uh, or maybe and i think this is a possibility as well so much of the appeal of trumpism has been tied to him and his affectations and his mannerisms that like uh, transference of any kind will actually be uh, impossible and nobody will be able to take up the mantle. I mean, I feel like in 2016, Ted Cruz kind of recognized that, you know, Trump was uh, Trump was on the rise and he tried to kind of do a version of it and, and it didn't really work. Maybe maybe things maybe, you know, years later after we've like all experienced four years of Donald Trump in the White House, that'll, you know, that'll be different. And, and you know, somebody like, you know, DeSantis is the people is the name a lot of people are, um, are, are putting forward. Maybe somebody like that will be able to pick up the Trumpian mantle. I don't know. I well, suspect, yeah, I suspect I, either way, it's just going to be terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I think that I, I think you're completely correct in that so much of the attachment to him was about his personality. And it's also about the fact that like, he apologized for nothing. And, you know, he earned his nickname Teflon Don. He just, like, nothing stuck to him. He just was, like, he just didn't give a shit. So I think that that, I mean, there can be that uh, sliver in someone who is slightly more polished. And I think that's even more horrifying to think about. Yeah, I mean, imagine imagine what like uh, resistance libs would would do with a figure like that. Like all they would have to do is say a bunch of pablum about how like we need to be united or whatever. And, you know, like Thomas Friedman will wet himself, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think your point is very well taken about um, uh, about how about his ideology. And one of the things that people i i saw like resistance libs constantly trying to do being like this is so hypocritical of him to do he has no governing ideology he has no <laughs> principles he doesn't have a coherent political message it's just whatever he feels like on the day yeah i mean he's the he's the perfect political figure for our age of like completely scattered attention and like yeah full epistemic collapse yeah no he's i i've i've uh i've like convinced myself over the course of this conversation not only is he going to be the republican nominee he's probably going to be president again i'm sorry to no, report no way <laughs> don't say that don't say that from your ivory tower in canada <laughs> yeah i i don't i don't want it to happen but i mean we've just, since we've just spent the past like 40 minutes talking about like how people are paying millions of dollars for jpegs <laughs> oh, of apes i mean that's the reality we're living in and if it's like if if that's if that's if that's what we're currently living through then there's a distinct chance that donald trump will be president again well we do live in the stupidest time in history so sure well um, i'm i'm agitating for bernie 2024 oh my god <laughs> Let that man retire. Someone <laughs> needs to talk about someone whose mantle needs to be taken up. Let our sweet prince sail into the Vermont sun. I'm worried about him. But also he looks he looks fine. Oh uh, yeah, I still I still watch his YouTube channel and uh no, he sounds he sounds great. He's still hitting all the right notes. I feel like recently he's been back to 
uh, kind of his old self of kind of more openly criticizing the Democratic Party, which I think yeah. is the Bernie that we all uh, that we all like. We the most. know and love. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And, you know, I understand why he especially in the the first few months of or really the first year of the Biden administration, I understand why he I don't really think he fell in line. I just think he tried to, like, support uh, President Biden and uh, shepherding us out of of the Trump years. And I I respect I respect that. I also like I don't know. I wonder what their friendship is like. Do you ever think about that? It's something I've it's something that I've always uh, I mean, I, I've never wanted to probe it too much because I find it it's it's a strange feature of Bernie, although I also think it's I mean, it's one of the things I understand in some ways, I think the least about him. Um, but I think it's also one of the things that's made him uh, an effective lawmaker. The fact that he is able to have this like searing populist critique of the political establishment while also um you know, main sort of maintaining friendships with people, being able to work with people. Um, I, I mean, with all that said, I, I've never really understood how anyone can like Joe Biden. That that kind of just <laughs> eludes me. But wow, that is I mean, that is a big blind spot in in your I get in your analysis of <laughs> the American populace, because People love Joe Biden. Oh no, I I understand I understand how people can politically like Joe Biden. I guess I mean in a kind of interpersonal way. Oh, in an interpersonal you way. Know, sure. Yeah. If, if 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 you've if you've been his colleague and you've seen like his his you know and, and you're you know you're uh, you're on the left and you've seen how he's voted for you know the past I was going to say thirty years. It's been more like fifty. Um, I, I know. I, it's kind of eludes me how you can uh, how you can like him, but uh, I think you know. they both they're both just like. They both just been there for so long. They're probably like family at this point. It's probably like in a in a weird way. I don't know. I think it's I would love to I would I just want to be a fly on the wall in one of their conversations so badly. Yeah, I mean, I I I feel like Bernie has kind of I feel like one of the things that accounts for why he's maybe been more critical critical of the Democrats is I feel like, and I don't have any like inside information to this effect. I'm just inferring it, but I feel like he's probably been, you know, there was all this talk, um, you know, like a year ago that Bernie was going to be central, you know, as chair of the Senate budget committee, he was going to be central to a lot of uh, what was going on. Um, but there was a press conference Biden did. It was like two weeks ago when Biden did that press conference where he was kind of saying like, or, or the way it was sold was this is Biden, you know, kind of relaunching his presidency um, amid all these falling approval ratings and all of these political crises. Um, there was a moment in the Q&A of that. It was it was a pretty nondescript uh, press conference, really. But um, there was a moment in the Q&A that I thought was pretty revealing where uh, Biden actually name dropped Bernie and distanced himself from him. He said, I'm not a socialist. I'm not Bernie Sanders. And then a few moments later, um, he was asked about you know, some objection Mitt Romney had had to, uh, you know, something in his, uh, you know, legislative package, something in Build Back Better. Um, I think that's what it was. And uh, and he said, you know, Mitt Romney's a straight shooter. He's a reasonable guy, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I think that's pretty emblematic of where the White House is at and where they're really oriented. I mean, oh, sure. You know, like a year ago, it was pretty unfashionable when I was writing stuff, uh, you know, to the effect of Joe Biden is not FDR. He's not going to bring about a second new deal. Um, 
a lot of people were, were kind of mad about that. But I mean, I think it's really been borne out. And I think there was always reason to believe, given Biden's you know long history of sort of uh, being obsessed with bipartisanship, uh, you know, oh, trying yeah. to offering Mitch McConnell concessions as vice president that McConnell wasn't even asking for that kind of thing. Uh, it always just seemed uh, hard to imagine to me that, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders was going to be in the driver's seat um, during a during a Biden presidency, given that the main purpose of Joe Biden's candidacy in some ways as much or more than defeating Donald Trump was defeating uh, Bernie Sanders. Oh, yeah, certainly. And it also bears noting that basically every Democratic president since Jimmy Carter has been heralded as, quote unquote, the next FDR. I remember very clearly the cover of Time magazine that had photoshopped uh, Barack Obama into like an, an FD, like him with like a cigar and a top hat or whatever. It's happened time and time. There is, I mean, anyone who thought, if you thought at all that Joe Biden was going to be the next FDR, you didn't listen to a word of what he said on the campaign trail or this whole time. The only thing that I've been, the only thing that I have been feeling positive about in the Biden administration is Deb Haaland as Secretary of the Interior and also how many antitrust people Biden has put on his um, high up in his administration. I think that's a really important thing and I hope that something happens there, but I don't I don't know. But other than that, it's been pretty bleak. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the Biden, uh, you know, I mean, the Biden like uh, agenda at this point has really consisted. I mean, they've, they've passed two large bills. I mean, they passed the, uh, I guess in February of 2021, they passed the relief plan, the American Rescue Plan, which had a lot of good stuff in it. Although a lot of those benefits, um, you know, were, were were set to expire. Like they didn't, you know, it was it was uh, those stimulus checks. You know, they could have made some version of those uh, permanent, and they and they didn't. But I mean, that was uh, a much bigger bill than the Obama administration passed during its first term. Um, so that was good. But then their second bill, which was that uh, uh, one that had the support of something like 10 Senate Republicans, the infrastructure uh, bill. Um, I mean, it's actively counterproductive on climate. It's, you know, it's I mean, it's a bill that 10 Senate Republicans voted for. You know, it's not mm -hmm. uh, it's not a great leap forward by any means. And it's certainly not the New Deal. Um, and it looks like now, you know, they're not going to pass major voting rights legislation. Um, they're, you know, the version of Build Back Better that is, you know, presently on the table last time I checked was, uh, I think, under two trillion dollars over 10 years, which is uh you know, I think we both agree a lot less than the six trillion over ten years that they were initially talking about. It's not even clear if they're going to pass um, this uh, this version of it. So it feels like uh, almost exactly a year into the Biden presidency, um, you know, it's it's kind of a lame duck administration. Both Biden and Harris are very unpopular, and rich people are are sinking their money into uh, JPEGs of of apes. That's where we're JPEGs at. of apes. And on that note, what a perfect place to end the show. Well, what a sad episode this has been. Um, <laughs> no, this has been a, actually a really fun conversation about a bunch of very depressing topics. Um, but Luke, 
where can our listeners find you? Uh, probably the best place is on Twitter at Luke W. Savage. Uh, you can pre-order my book, The Dead Center, which is an essay collection that I think should be shipping next month. Uh, you can pre-order it now and get 15% off. Don't hold me to next month. Uh, I have no control over this. Um, but uh, yeah, if you like this show, you'll probably like the book. So check it out. Well, Luke, thank you so much for coming on. This has been, again, a lot of fun. And I can't wait to have you back to talk about your book. Hell yeah, let's do it. And thank you. This was fun. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Reply Guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H-JuliaTweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land.